0: Our guest today is my good friend, Dr. David May, who is professor of New Testament at Central Seminary. David specializes in the Gospels and the Book of Revelation, which I hadn't really thought about this before, but your your specialty is the first four documents and the last one, you're avoiding that messy middle. Um, David recently taught three Monday night sessions at Country Club Christian Church, and in this episode and the next, he and I will be discussing that presentation which he called New Doors into the Book of Revelation. Dr. May, welcome to the podcast Heart and Mind.
1: Oh thanks, it's good to be with you.
0: It's funny calling you Dr. May because we always affectionately refer to each other as colleague so I may say colleague a few times. Um, Before we knock on some of those doors I wanted to ask, I don't think I know the answer to this which is kind of interesting since we've been best friends for almost 30 years but when did you first really become interested in the book of Revelation? How did that happen?
1: My interest started in seminary. I went to seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I was there from 1981 to 1987. And it was in my Ph.D. studies that I had a course on translating Revelation from the Greek. So we intensely spent uh, a semester translating the 22 chapters and so by immersing myself within this work it just fascinated me uh, first of all simply how the language was, was done in Revelation because the writer struggles with his grammar some he's, mm-hmm. he's, he is not the uh, proficient PhD Greek writer and so it was fascinating just translating it but then the images and the uh, perspectives that come out of this book just intrigued me. So from that point on, I hmm. became fascinated by it and began reading in it, studying it, hmm. and uh, teaching it, teaching it, and focusing upon my, uh, he's, got a,
0: he's got a pretty specialized Greek vocabulary, too. I mean, he's got words that nobody else would use very often, at least.
1: The, yeah, that's right. It's,
0: uh, huh. it's unique,
1: what he does.
0: Well, um, in your commentary titled, Weaving a Tapestry of Hope, you list, and I think it's a really clever imagery or metaphor, seven lights of interpretation using the imagery of a Jewish menorah. Um, I'm struck by several of them, but I want to start with the first two, which I thought was kind of interesting. There's almost a tension, or maybe not, but the first one is avoid the trap of overinterpreting. People try to find stuff everywhere. And the second one, though, the plot's really simple and straightforward. So maybe actually those two really work well together. But could you elaborate on those? Sure. Uh, first
1: of all, when people approach Revelation, they see all of these strange images beasts and stars and serpents and figures like the Son of Man with a sword coming out of the mouth. And so. With all of these various images what happens people have a tendency to want to overinterpret because they want to see a meaning behind every single symbol that is in revelation and I think if you're trying to find that you're almost making it like a code to decode and you miss some of the some of the images you you get too close to it you impose too much into it I I sometimes have used the illustration of painting called pointillism, which is where paintings are done with little points of color, and if you get too close to it, you can't see the image or the picture. Mm -hmm. You need to step back so you can see the whole picture, Mm -hmm. and no symbol in in and of itself in Revelation means anything. It's only when you step back and you see the whole that you can get a, a better healthier, more integrated Mm -hmm. meaning from Revelation, but people have a tendency to want to see every little star, every little image as meaning Mm -hmm. something.
0: Uh, There's a whole cottage industry of people who (laughs) claim to have interpretations for every little thing.
1: That's right. Books and books have been been built upon it.
0: So the second one then, I think people would be surprised to hear this one, that the plot's really pretty simple and straightforward because most people get the hives or break out into anxiety sweat when they think about reading Revelation so how is it simple and straightforward?
1: Well and I think because of the complexity of what people perceive with the symbols and all the images and cycles that are going on they think it has to be very complex and also a lot of people make it complex by the books that are published out there Mm. Uh, but the plot itself overall in these 22 chapters, I, I feel like it's very, very simple. It, it's, first of all, um, persecution for those who are following the Lamb. And these are these early first Christians. And we could say those who are following Christ, but the favorite term in Revelation for Christ is the Lamb. So the plot begins very easy. There is persecution for those who are following the Lamb the next stage is there's going to be judgment on those who do the persecution and then finally there's salvation for those who are persecuted so you can think of it as three stages it's it's a simple plot but he tells it with great panache mm-hmm. with great <laughs> vivid imagery he captures you and pulls you in with both sights and sounds and 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 with with actually smells and taste. He, every sense, all the five senses are engaged when you read Revelation. And so this plot becomes much more filled out and detailed. Though mm-hmm. so it's very, very simple.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we'll come back to that, um, that you were talking about, the what's complicated versus what is simple. Yeah, the plot. So if it's simple, um, I'm also struck by your third point, which is, Kind of again very counterintuitive most people just assume that Revelation is all about the future and you say it was written more for the present so say more about that and what's the background that's really going on when uh, John writes the book that we call Revelation
1: uh, this is probably one of the greatest stumbling blocks for people when they read Revelation and that is they want to read all 22 chapters as pointing toward the future they want to read it like a blueprint for this will happen, this will happen, and this will happen. Uh, and yet, it's not so much about the future. It is really a great deal about what was happening in that very present time when John is writing. This is why one of the descriptions that is used for God in Revelation sometimes called the one who sits upon the throne, God is described as the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come in, in the form of Christ. So the one who was, talking about the past, but the one the one who is, mm-hmm. present. And so this book really focuses... And the is
0: on comes first in the way it's laid right, out, doesn't right. it?
1: The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come.
0: Yeah, because we would always think past, present, future, but... It really starts with present goes back to the past and then the future which is just crazy.
1: And, and that's because this book was written for people with a very specific contextual situation they were dealing with. These folks were living under the oppressive Roman Empire and they were being marginalized, pushed to the very edge of their existence. And so Revelation is, in a sense, written to encourage them during these oppressive and dark times. Mm -hmm. Uh, We sometimes will refer to this writing as a type of apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic is a Greek word that means revealing. And apocalyptic literature is often written during these times of extreme uh, tribulation, persecution, Marginalization, and it's written to help people get through these these dark times. Uh, apocalyptic writings don't happen when everything's going well in the status status mm-hmm. quo.
0: And if I remember right, the the going theory is that Domitian was the emperor at this time.
1: That's right. One of the theories about when this particular work was written, and there are there are various scholars and. and Folks that will. Make ones it. that don't get it
0: right, like you. Right, right,
1: right. <laughs> but the majority of folks believe that this was somewhere written during the time of an emperor by the name of Domitian and was probably written somewhere around the, almost the late 90s. So we're talking around 93, 94, 95. And Especially this writing would have appealed to those folks who were in Asia Minor, which is where 1st, 2nd, where uh, chapters 2 and Chapters 3 deal with these seven churches in Asia Minor, because in Asia Minor there was a very strong connection with the Roman emperors, especially in these major cities. Uh, They all wanted to make sure the emperor was going to be their patron, so they would build temples. To the uh, to the divine Caesars. Uh, they would build temples to the divine Rome, the city of Rome and then they would uh, pay for it and undergird the, the priesthood there to offer prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the mm-hmm. emperor. Because one of the ways that your city prospered was if the mm-hmm. emperor <laughs> liked what you were doing and was impressed and so uh, there was a great deal of focus on the emperor in mm-hmm. these cities and so um, those who went along with it did well but the Christians Christians these early followers of Jesus were going to be always in a minority uh, they found themselves as sometimes what I call neither fish nor fowl they didn't fit into the Jewish sect and they didn't fit into the pagan sect So they found themselves in this in-between awkward time. So Mm -hmm. They could be denounced by both their pagan (laughs) neighbors, Mm -hmm. and they could be denounced by Judeans. Mm -hmm. And so they find themselves in this awkward place, and Christians would wind up getting persecuted. One one of the reasons they'd be persecuted, uh, you weren't offering any sacrifices Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. emperor, to the city, and people would look at you and say, how odd. You know, yeah. he, he or she or this family, they've not offered a single dove or a single grain offering or wine offering mm-hmm. for this health of the city. There's something wrong with
0: them. That is, that is really helpful because I've often thought, people don't get nervous when they read Philippians because they say, well, I need to know about what was going on in Philippi and what was Paul's relationship. Mm-hmm. Same thing for Corinthians or whatever. But with Revelation, instead of thinking, oh, I need to know what's going on behind it, they think I need to know something about how to read the future and so this is really, really helpful. And
1: especially when it comes to the symbol of Babylon. Mm. I mean Babylon when this was written mm-hmm. was no longer a major city. Right. So he's he's using this particular term in a symbolic way. It's a bigger image.
0: I'm glad you bring that up. Let me me ask you this, because I've heard different views on this. I think I know yours, but I've heard some people who say that when John uses Babylon, it's code for a a long-gone regime, but to kind of stand in for Rome. But the debate I've heard is that John wrote in code, and only the insiders would get it, and not everybody else would get it. I guess the question is, would everybody reading this or hearing it read, in the first century, would they say, oh my gosh, he's talking about Rome, or was it really kind of a code for the insiders?
1: I, I think it operates on both levels. I think many of the symbols that he uses are popular symbols that people would have would have understood, because they're symbols that they encounter every day. Mm-hmm. Um, they would encounter them in statues, they would encounter them in pictures, they would encounter them on coins, so they would encounter them in many ways. So those symbols that some of the symbols we find in Revelation they would be aware of. Um, When it comes to knowing all of them, probably not. But here is where John is not alone. John is described as a prophet. One who, and sometimes we get that idea of prophet wrong because we do think it's just future, but a prophet is one who actually tells you more about what is happening in the here and now. They can read and see what's happening. Mm -hmm. So, He's telling you, here's the situation as we have it now with Rome. There are other prophets in these cities. We would call them today preachers, Mm -hmm. and they probably would get John's message and help interpret it for the congregations. Mm -hmm. It's not unlike what would happen whenever Paul would send his letters out, and they would be read, or he would send Timothy or Phoebe Phoebe with the letters, Mm -hmm. and they would interpret it for the congregation. I don't think there's any question that these letters as they were sent out, this revelation, would have been interpreted in these local communities to help them understand some of the symbols, some of the images. But but Babylon is one of the big ones that, when you say that, you can think wrong. Mm-hmm. It's, it's This is just another way to talk about it. Now, for, for people who are truly on the outside, pagans, uh, those who have no connection with this movement. This would have seemed very, very strange. I, I right. can, I can see where outsiders would say Babylon. Right. Poor
0: John probably wouldn't have paid much mind to it anyway. This no. is just a ragtag band of. That's right. Crazies it, or something. Babylon.
1: This is a crazy,
0: crazy hmm. guy writing this because
1: it's, hmm. it's, it's gone. It's no longer here. He's been out in the sun too long on the island <laughs> of Patmos.
0: Um. I know that one of your passions, besides tennis, is collecting ancient coins. So people might be surprised to learn what can be gained from uh, numismatics, the study of coins, and the Book of Revelation. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes, this is a very fascinating area for me, and it's an area that I have written on in journal articles because I've found it of such great interest. Um, first of all. Uh, Coins were one of the most ubiquitous, widespread phenomena in the ancient world. They were put out by the millions and millions. And there are multiple denominations in this day and age. We, We often have heard of the denarius, but there were many other silver and bronze and gold coins that circulated. And those are just Roman imperial coins. There are also coins that were local provincial coins, so they were out there by the millions and it was a way that Rome got out its theology, ideology. Mm -hmm. It's the best way to put it out there in the communities. Mm -hmm. You could put it out there in statues, yes, and creating temples, but this is something that was traded and carried about, and so the images on these coins has, these images have particular meanings behind them. And for people who could not read, those in a society that did not have literacy literacy like we do today. They had about 5% could read and write, so 95% couldn't. To see these images would influence you on, on how you are to think. Propaganda. So mm. Rome had the uh, monopoly on propaganda and getting these symbols out. And many of these symbols are symbols that you would actually find in Revelation. Stars, horses, chariots serpents or snakes uh, arms uh, swords, thrones almost every symbol that you find in Revelation you can also find on coins so my basic thesis is what John is attempting to do is to take some of the symbols that were so prevalent, so well known take those and reinterpret them for his readers. Hmm. If this is the propaganda of Rome saying Rome has power, these are Rome's symbols, he over stamps them or counter stamps them mm-hmm. with a new meaning for stars and serpents and mm-hmm. thrones. And so he takes that. And mm-hmm. I, he doesn't have the monopoly of minting coins, but he does have pen and papyrus where he can get it out in his own way.
0: Seems like, in a kind of play on words, they were coins are both part commerce, but mm-hmm. also, in a way, commercial. A commercial for the yeah. Empire, for the Emperor, you know, deification of the Emperor, that kind of thing. Commerce and commercial.
1: I'll have to steal that and yeah, use that well, next time I write.
0: Well, we <laughs> steal from each other all the time, so <laughs> feel free. Okay, so let's go back to this notion. The plot is rather straightforward, but the structure of Revelation is quite complex. It's one thing to say, okay the good guys are going to get rewarded and the bad guys are going to get punished but when you get into the structure and I know there's this one word that you and I've talked about before and you mentioned on the Monday night class recapitulation Mm -hmm. which uh, you really get your money's worth on that word but help us with the structure of revelation
1: well first of all often when people read revelation they want to read with the structure of what I call a linear approach a happens, B, C, D, E, F. It's just a continuous narrative from chapter 1 to chapter 22. However, if you read Revelation closely, folks see cycles. You have seven seals, and then you have seven trumpets, and you have seven bowls of wrath. You, you have these series of cycles that take place so that I think a way of reading Revelation a better way is this term that we used, recapitulation which is where John tells the story and he completes the story but then he retells it again in a little different fashion with a little bit of variety, with a little bit more explanation, a little bit more detail so really what we have in Revelation are a series of stories of the end. He tells one, he completes it, and then he says, let me expand it and tell it again, and he tells it again.
0: Hmm.
1: And then he says, oh, well, let me tell it again. And I I sometimes equate this with the way children like to hear a story over and over again. Hmm. Will you read me the story of green eggs and ham? Or how many times will you read that story to a child? They know it but they like to hear it. There's a comfort in it. And also because this is an oral society and they're not reading this, they need to hear it again and again and again. But really what you have are a series of the whole story is told in a nutshell. It really comes to a conclusion there at the end of opening of the seventh seal. Mm. That's it. But then he retells the story by telling the story again with the seven trumpets and at the end of the seventh trumpet it's over hmm. it's done and then he tells a story he does the bowl
0: then you know. he
1: does the bowl he tells the story over so these cycles are telling the same story but just as recapitulation in music yeah. it gets expanded that
0: strikes there. me as really helpful if somebody's trying to read through Revelation to recognize that okay I've got this plot and now it's going to happen again and now it's going to happen again instead of thinking well how does this overlap or how does this fall sequentially so then the next question relates to this in a way Um, you know there are scholars who see in the book of revelation a seven act play Mm -hmm. kind of thing seven scenes so to speak so if you have these seven act play or whatever metaphor you want to use there for the play and then you've got recapitulation how does all of that fit and just say something about the the notion of it being a stage play yeah
1: Uh, One of my professors that I had when I was in seminary and also inspired me for Revelation was a professor by the name of James Blevins, and James Blevins had a book called called, uh, Revelation as Drama, and one of the theories that was put forward about 70 or 80 years ago was that Revelation was composed in the background of the author's mind using drama. Hmm. Now it makes a lot of sense when you think about the area that John was writing to. All the seven cities that he writes to are very large cities, Pergamum, Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, they are all large Greco-Roman cities. They have theaters, sometimes theaters that would see 25,000 people or more in in these areas. And John is familiar with this Greek drama. Uh, it, it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it becomes a method by which he can compose his gospel and, and share it. Now, one of the keys in any Greek drama in the ancient world, the chorus. The chorus is usually composed of 12 to 24 individuals, and they sing or chant uh, to kind of explain what's going on at with what's being acted out. And what do we have in Revelation except the 24 elders mm. that chant and sing that help explain what's going on. Mm. And then typically you would have a narrator or a stage person that would help explain what's going on. Well, we have the in, the angelic interpreter there, who takes John around and explains what you're seeing here, what you're Mm -hmm. seeing there. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something really to this idea that John has taken what in his world was a secular method of communication and he's Christianized it. Mm -hmm. He's taken it and applied a Christian background to it Mm -hmm. uh, as he gets across. And as you mentioned some people feel like they can see uh, they'll read Revelation with seven acts with seven scenes mm-hmm. in every act. Well, it makes it makes sense. Yeah,
0: seven is the number, that's for sure. Seven
1: is the number. When you talk about Revelation, you, of course you have to talk about numbers. Yeah. And when you talk about numbers, you never want to think about them as quantity, but always as quality. They say something about the nature of the time. Mm-hmm. It's like we will look out and you'll see... Uh, a day you'll say, ooh, that's a perfect ten <laughs> yeah. today. It's a ten. Yeah. And
0: so John would say it's a perfect seven. <laughs> it's a
1: perfect seven. That's it's right. Seven. Well
0: we called this uh, you called this session New Doors into the Book of Revelation and we haven't talked about any of those doors. So we'll do that in the next episode. But I want to thank Doctor May for joining me in this episode of Heart and Mind and thank those of you who listened in. Thank you.